This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Well, I want to begin our time together this morning with a, uh, just a light-hearted question, nothing you know, too serious, just this. When was the last time you ruined your life? Just go ahead, turn to your neighbor this morning, you know, tell them all about that little experience. Share with just the last time you know, your life went off the tracks, nothing too big. I'm just kidding. But, uh, but really, when was the last time that something like that happened? You know, maybe you didn't ruin your life, okay? But it was a foolish choice that landed you in a difficult situation, right? Maybe you wrote that email, and instead of deleting it, you sent it, right? Uh, maybe you made that purchase without talking to your wife. Maybe you made the wrong move, and now you're paying for it. What was it? Whoever happened there, for most of us, when we're in those frustrating situations for a long enough of a time, we tend to get angry with at least one of three people, ourselves, others, or God, right? Now, this really isn't that new of an observation. Proverbs 19.3 points this out. It says, a person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against God. When our lives get messy, we tend to get mad. And what we do with that anger is really important. In fact, it's that kind of anger uh, that is the reason why some of us uh, don't want to talk to certain people, right? Uh, including God. In reality, it might not always be because of something that they did or entirely because of something they did, but because of our own foolish choices. Not that we'd ever admit that. I remember being on my front porch uh, late one evening with a close friend of mine, and uh, he was sharing with me an experience that matched up with this kind of cycle that he had been in for a couple of years. Uh, he was in the military, and uh, when he would be deployed, his faith would just really grow. You know, he would, he, he would read the Bible every day, and, and he would sin less, and he felt really close to God. He would feel physically healthier, and then the deployment would end. And he would slowly start to make this descent into a really dark place, making choice after choice after choice that was unhealthy and wrong. And then he would get deployed. And this would start all over again. This roller coaster of choices was just going on and on and on. And he had eventually lost patience with God to come in and fix things. See, he didn't doubt that there was a God. He was just angry at him. He didn't trust his character anymore. And so he didn't care very much about what God thought about what he did. Have we ever been there? Listen, wrong choices land us in difficult situations, and usually the result is us being angry with at least one of three people, ourselves, others, or God. 
And eventually, as that sets in, it always leads to us landing in trouble. Why? Because as that cycle of choices continues, we begin to compound our problem. Right as we were, you know, making more choices, we begin to make those choices out of anger, right? Anger and bitterness. And let's be honest, what kind of choices do we make when we're angry? Really bad choices, right? In fact, if you and I look back throughout our life, I would be willing to bet money that as you look at the places where you have big regrets from choices or words that you said, I'd be willing to bet that there were moments when you were angry at yourself, others, or God. That's where we're at. Those kinds of difficult moments. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're stuck in anger. Or maybe you've tossed in your belief in God. Or maybe you've made a momentary grade A idiot's choice and you're regretting it. Maybe you've been through this cycle now so many times that you really have ruined your life. And if so, isn't the natural question that formulates during those seasons or moments of brokenness is whether or not this is going to end? Or, maybe on the hopeful note, whether or not things can be fixed. To use an older word, whether or not things can be redeemed. And it's not just that situation, but it's yourself, right? It's me. It's my life that I'm looking for redemption in. That's what's going on. And this morning, I want us to address that. Whatever that situation that you might be in now or in the future, I want us to answer a question. The question is this. If I've blown it in life, why should I have any hope of redemption? If I've blown it in life, why should I have any hope of redemption. And this morning, I want us to show, uh, to see an example uh, from the Old Testament of a group of people who are in that exact situation. And to get some bearings for this passage, uh, imagine with me that you're a part of this group of people that have royally blown it. You had this amazing offer to take possession of a land that was full of great food, which in a hand-to-mouth existence is really important, and it had great real estate that you wouldn't have to build, and wealth like you couldn't imagine, and you turned it down out of fear. You blew it, right? You made choices that ruined your life. And so in response, God, who has lots of time, has disciplined his people, including yourself, by barring you from entering the promised land. You've been sent into the desert, which has lots of sand, until the older generation has perished and been buried in that sand. And that desert has been a series of ups and downs, a roller coaster of choices. And you're starting to move once again from being mad at yourself to being mad at others and God. And so we pick up things on the next turn of this cycle in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. It says this, From Mount Hor they sent out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Basically that means they're about to have to take a longer and harder road through the desert than they had wanted. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt 
to die in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now pause there. What is this, what is this, what is this worthless food and, and this angry situation about here? What are they referring to here with this food? Well, it was manna. It was these small white pods or seeds that God had been supplying them each day to use and to love off of. And so what's the deal then with, with hating it and getting so angry? Well, imagine with me, if you will, right after this service for lunch, we all went down to the great Wisconsin institution of Culver's. And we got in there and we ordered a butter burger. You know, two patties, melted cheese, bacon, lettuce, tomato, ketchup, hold the onion, hold the mustard, hold the pickle, right? On those two butter-toasted buns. We're just, we'll just say amen now, right? Well, let's head on down there. Who's got the coupons? What's the flavor of the day, right? You sank your teeth into that delicious burger. and You devoured it. And then it got even better. You went back for dinner. And you ate another butter burger. And then the thing was, though, that then you had to go back for breakfast. And guess what? It was butter burgers. And then for lunch, you were giving your kids butter burgers. And then for dinner, it was butter burgers. And breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch, dinner. And that this cycle would repeat until you died. Do you think you'd get sick of butter burgers? Do you think you'd even begin to hate it? Even if God was supplying it? Well, when we think of it that way, it's pretty understandable how the Israelites came to this conclusion, but that doesn't make it excusable. After all, they're here by their own choice. God didn't owe them anything. And now they're getting mad at God and taking aim at his character, calling the food that he's providing worthless, and saying that he's brought them here to die. Because we ruin our own lives, and then we get mad at God. So what happens next? Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery, or venomous, serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now pause again. The oddness of this text with its snakes is only matched by the deadly seriousness of its situation. Now I want to ask you this morning, as you're hearing this text read, what is the big problem in the passage? What is the problem? Well, first thing that pops into my head is snakes. I hate snakes. They've got to be the worst animal on planet Earth. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's right. A couple of you are with me, right? Now, now, now some of others of us, as, as we were hearing that, uh, we may have thought of a different problem. Probably the bunch of the snake lovers in the room, right? We, we thought the problem is not the snakes. The problem is that people are dying, right? I mean, you know, they're being bit by venomous snakes, and they're, they're dying. And last time I checked, and I check often, dying is a really big problem. But if you had to look at this passage just strictly from the perspective of the people in it, 
What is the problem in their eyes? What is the problem that they are spotting here? Well, look back at verse 7 with me. What does it say? And the people came to Moses and said, We have snakes. Moses, we have an infestation problem, and it's killing us, literally. Right? Is that what it says? No. What does it say? We have what? We have sinned. That is their true problem. God's discipline of snakes merely serves to highlight the sin, the problem in their life and in our lives that must be addressed is sin. Because see, the picture that the Bible paints for us is that all of us are in this situation. All of us are here. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament describes it in Romans 3.23, there he says, for all have sinned. All means all. It means all of us are in the midst of a ruined life because of foolish choices we've made to sin. Decisions that maybe we think are understandable, but they are not excusable. And I wonder if we've ever realized that God has used death to highlight our need for redemption. And so the question of if I've blown it in my life, why should I have any hope of redemption applies to all of us, every last one of us. So how do things end in this story? How does God respond to the people? Verse eight, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. Everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. Now, as you read these final verses here, one of the things that might have stuck out to you was that God doesn't take the snakes away. God hears Moses' prayer, but he doesn't exactly grant his request. He doesn't just take the detestable punishment away. No. What does he do? He redeems it. He redeems it. God takes the symbol of their punishment and sin and enlists it as the very symbol of their new hope for life, for redemption. That's what this odd bronze serpent thing is all about. That they now look up to what they hated as the very source of their salvation. God doesn't remove it. He redeems it. And in our lives, God has done the very same thing to give us hope for redemption. Jesus looked back at this very same situation and said that it was a foreshadow, an example that pointed to him of what he would do someday. That in John 3, 14, it says, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in, on a pole in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus would come. He would take the cross and the grave, the very symbols of our sin, and redeem them as the new symbols of eternal life. This is the hope 
This is the hope that sets every follower of Christ apart in every situation, that they can have hope because Christ's redemption offers us life. Christ's redemption offers us life. That's what the Christian hope is. It's simple. It's beautiful. Powerful. But my burden for you this morning is whether or not you have that hope. See, because I grew up in a church very much like this one. I attended Awana, and I would listen to my dad preach, and I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I was the Sunday school MVP. And yet, on the inside, I was dying. I was perfect on the outside and dying on the inside. And it wasn't until I came to a point where my life was ruined, where I knew I wasn't going any further, where I was right up on the edge of attempting suicide, where I realized I am broken. My life is ruined. I need an answer. I cried out to God for help. I was utterly broken and needed salvation. See, because I knew in my head that Christ's redemption offered me life, but I needed to know it in my heart. I needed to believe it in my heart. So my burden for you is whether you're mad at God or have given up on God or have ruined your life, is whether or not this morning you leave with that hope. Is Christ's redemption only something in your mind or has it transformed your heart? So to help us all answer that question this morning, I want us to dive deeper into two things. What is Christ's redemption and what do we do with his offer of life? What is Christ's redemption and what do we do with his offer of life? I don't want to assume this morning that we're all on the same page when it comes to Christ's redemption and what it means. I want to be clear about what we're talking about because God's grace and redemption can run counter to what we usually know and expect. Max Lucado uh, said it well when he wrote, I've never been surprised by God's judgment, but I'm still stunned by his grace. God's judgment has never been a problem for me. In fact, I've always, it's always seemed right. Lightning bolts on Sodom, fire on Gomorrah, good job. Egyptians swallowed by the Red Sea, they had it coming. Forty years of wandering to loosen the stiff necks of the Israelites would have done it myself. Discipline is easy for me to swallow, logical to assimilate, manageable to appropriate, but God's grace is anything but. So let me ask you a simple question. What is Christ's redemption? What is Christ's redemption? I mean, after all, we don't use the word redemption very often unless we're talking about redeeming credit card points or coupons, right? Well, if we look back at our text, we see that God uses redemption as the idea of an exchange. Whereas one author explained this exchange saying, the simple equation endures. The cure for snakes is a snake. The cure for a human life is one man's life. The cure for death is death. Nothing less will do. Christ's redemption as a perfect exchange of life and righteousness for our death and sin. As the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 described it, he wrote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Christ's redemption is a perfect exchange that replaces our ruined situation for his perfect position. I want to say that again. Christ's redemption is a perfect exchange that replaces our ruined situation for his perfect position. Think of it this way. I found a many example of this when I lived in Pennsylvania, uh, which is diner country, if you don't know. And uh, one morning, uh, I was to meet a friend of mine for breakfast at our usual spot of Mary Jane's Diner. If you're ever in York, Pennsylvania, Mary Jane's Diner, remember that. And we were scheduled to have breakfast there. And, and when we got there, though, we realized it was under construction. And so he suggested that we go to this other place down the street. And we pulled into there, and I walked into this diner, and let me tell you, I have never been in such a greasy spoon in all my life. I mean, I'm looking at the menu here thinking, I, I'm just looking for what goes from bag to plate. You know, bag, I don't want, I don't want to be touching this in between here. Now, the, the, this meal was still going to cost me money, apparently, too. And, uh, and so anyways, we finished our breakfast, and, and we went to go to the counter to pay. And, and that's when uh, the last straw fell. And I realized that, of course, this was a place that was cash only. Let me tell you, friends, I'm a millennial. I haven't seen cash in years, okay? I don't even remember who's on the $10 bill, you know, right? It, I haven't seen it in years. Redemption would have been for the guy in line behind me to have stepped up to the counter and paid the bill that I could never pay. Unfortunately, he was a millennial too, and so he didn't have any cash either, you know? <laughs> Kidding. But this is why Christ's redemption is such good news. It's that he has stepped up to the counter on our behalf to pay the price that we could never pay. And instead, we get to enjoy what he earned. As he, the perfect, one-for-one sacrifice, bore all the sin of the world and took on the discipline of God that we deserved of death and separation from God. And he took all of that on once and for all. But because he had done nothing wrong, he had perfectly secured the redemption of our soul, God saw fit to raise him from the dead, conquering, redeeming the cross and the grave, again, the very symbols of our sin, so that we could have life. That's what we celebrated last week at Easter. That's what's been done. Christ's redemption is the perfect exchange that replaces our ruined, bankrupt situation for his perfect position. That's why we can have hope that whatever our situation might be, that Christ's redemption offers us life. So the question is, how will you respond to the offer of life? What will we do with his offer? And if you think about it, this really is the key question this morning. This is why we exist as a church, to hold out the offer, the good news of what he's done. That we each need to answer this morning the question for ourselves. Because if we realize the state that we're in, the exchange of redemption that we're being offered, then we need to know how to respond. How can we begin to approach this offer of life? If we're mad at God, or if we believe that, believe that God isn't there any longer in our world, or maybe we've just blown it in life, 
first. What if you're mad at God? What if you're like one of the Israelites or the guy on my front porch? What if you're mad at God? And you're looking at the ruins of your life and you have blamed him for it. Here's how I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you with one word. One word. Confess. Confess. I I know that that's not the word that we necessarily want to hear, but we don't need to sugarcoat anything. We simply need to confess, just like the Israelites did. I have sinned, and I've spoken against the Lord. It's not easy, but unless we recognize that we have misjudged God's character, then we'll always be stuck here. You won't be able to sort out the rest of your life unless you realize that the same God who sent his son to die for you is still for you. So I invite you, confess, repent, and enjoy the life that God has offered. Second question, what if you simply don't believe in God? If you're in that place this morning and you're hearing maybe again this offer of of redemption, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, that sounds nice, but listen, I just don't believe in God. And I get, you know, for those of you in this uh, position, uh, you might be, you know, very quiet about this. You may not really want to tell anyone about this because it might cost you relationally and so forth. But if that's you, and this is what you actually believe, I want to encourage you with this this morning, that not believing in God is as much of a choice as believing in God. It's a choice. It's a choice. As we have searched, as I've searched out this question, as I have consistently realized that as someone grows in understanding Christ's redemption in the world around them and so forth, it becomes as much of a choice to believe as it is a choice to not believe. Or as Sheldon Von Aachen described it, a chasm begins to form on either side of our thinking that we choose by faith to jump to one side or to the other, whether it's to atheism or Christianity, whether it's to Hinduism or Christianity or whatever. Given the evidence, it is a choice to believe in Jesus or is a leap to not believe. Don't be bullied into thinking anything else. That's why Jesus states it the way he does. Whoever believes. It's open. It's a choice. And you have one. Third question. What if we've really blown it? You may not feel like you have much of a choice. And you're hearing about a ruined life. And you're in total agreement. That's, that's me. <laughs> Friend, I want to encourage you this morning to know that the offer is for anyone. In Numbers, what does it say? Everyone who is bitten, right? Anyone who looks up. Friends, the worst member of the Israelite tribe could have looked up and been saved. What does Christ say? To whoever believes, right? The offer was to anyone. You can't blow it because you didn't earn it. The invitation is simple. Look up. Look up. Believe. To trust in Jesus, to confess your sins, turn and repent. Look up. It's for anyone any time, including you. As we begin to understand the life that Christ's redemption offers us, it has a powerful effect on the world around us. I think back to great stories 
of what I've seen God's redemption at work and uh, in the life of somebody who's blown it, didn't believe in God and so forth. And one of the stories that came to my mind as I was preparing for this message was of a friend of mine named Chris. Chris, uh, when he uh, was introduced to the offer of Christ's redemption, he had been married for about seven years. And during that seven years, he had really blown it. He had had not one, but two affairs. And somehow, his marriage was still surviving. Chris didn't have much interest in God, but he knew he had some glaring and growing issues in his life. The one thing that was really consistent in Chris's life was that he was a gym goer. He was an athlete. And it just so happened, in God's providence, that the gym where he worked out in had another guy named Dave. And Dave was a quiet man, but Chris, being the outgoing, driven guy that he is, always made a point to get to know everyone around him in the gym. You guys know some of those people. They bother you, right? Chris was that guy. And one day, as uh, he started to get to know Dave, Dave took a risk and started sharing with him about Christ. And a while later, Dave invited Chris to make a choice, to start believing in Jesus. And as Chris would tell it, as they gathered in his living room, and Chris prayed to receive Christ, no beams of light came down, no fireworks went off. He simply said, amen, and it was over. But that day, Chris made a choice to believe in Jesus. And when I met Chris and Dave six years later, serving at the same church, it was obvious to see the effects of Christ's redemption in Chris's life, in his wife's life, in his kid's life, all across the board, as God moved and took life to a death place and redeemed it. Amen? That's the offer this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we hear your offer. Lord, we recognize that we are in desperate need. Lord, we have ruined our life. We have come to a place of understanding that. Lord, this morning, if, if any one of us is in that place, God, I pray that you would nudge us, pull us right on over that line to going from thinking that we have it together to confessing and realizing that we are broken. We've sinned. We've messed up. And Father, we need you. So Lord, we repent. We come before you this morning. We ask that in Christ's name, that you would redeem us. You would redeem our life. You would move. So Lord, we invite you in here this morning. Do the work that only you can do. We trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen.